When was the last time something stopped you dead in your tracks? Not literally dead, of course, but when you were just minding your own business, when all of a sudden you saw something that made you just stop and stare. Could have been something shocking or surprising, horrifying even, or beautiful. I felt this way when I saw the news of the big trade the Sens and Leafs made this week. I was stunned by it. But one of the things that most often stops me in my tracks is a breathtaking sunset. When you turn a corner or you look outside and you see one of these sunsets, you can't just glance at it and then look away. You have to stop and marvel. Wow. That is beautiful. As we dig into the story of Job again today in the Bible, this is what Elihu is going to try to make Job do. To stop, stare, and marvel. He's going to try to paint a picture more powerful than a gorgeous sunset. In order to try to get Job to stop his whining and to see God in his glory. I'll tell you this, nothing will ever stop us in our tracks more powerfully or forcefully than when we catch a vision of God in his greatness. Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel all experienced this in the Bible. So did Jesus' disciples. Job is about to. But before, Job, before God himself shows up, Job gets a first stunning glimpse through the words of Elihu previewing and preparing him for what was about to come. Today, I hope we can see even a glimmer of what Job saw through Elihu's prophetic words. So let's ask God for that, shall we? Please bow your heads and, and pray with me as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we can worship you this morning, and we pray that you would speak to us as we look into your word that you would communicate your truth through your Spirit, and that your Spirit would be working inside of us, on each of us, that he would soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be encouraged and convicted and changed today, that we would, be, uh, that we would never be the same because of what we see of you in your Word. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Job chapter 36. Job 36. That will be on page 441 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. Job was one of the greatest, godliest men to ever live who had been totally devastated by suffering. And after he and his friends engaged in a long back and forth debate, Job gave this lengthy final defense of his innocence, and then everyone fell silent. At least for about a minute. Because that's when young Elihu entered into the conversation. Elihu had been respectfully letting his elders speak first, but inside he was fuming. Why was he so angry? Well, Elihu felt that God's honor was being demeaned. Of course, by Job's three friends, obviously, but also even by Job himself. Because while Job was mostly right, he was also partially wrong on some crucial things. Job's sin hadn't caused his suffering, but in his suffering, he had sinned. And so Elihu seems to have been sent by God as a prophet in order to begin correcting Job. We were told earlier that Elihu was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So not because he defended his own goodness, but because he cast doubt on God's goodness. Why he first told Job, contrary to what you've said, God is not a silent enemy to you. He still speaks in a variety of ways. He speaks to us. Even when he seems silent, he's still speaking. Then Elihu told him, contrary to what you've implied, 
God is not being unjust or unrighteous. That's impossible. God is righteous. He is transcendent. He is just. He is great. God doesn't owe us a single thing. And yet he is merciful to us. Therefore Job was wasting his breath, multiplying worthless words, as he says at the end of chapter 35. And now because God's anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgressions, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Today we'll see Elihu's summary and conclusion. He's been building up this dr dramatic crescendo. He starts here by saying, just bear with me, guys. Just bear with me. I've got a little bit more to say. Look at verse 1. He says, and Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. So, again, he's defending God and and speaking up on God's behalf. In fact, Elihu claims that what he's about to say didn't originate with him. In verse 3 it says, I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. <laughs> Wait a minute. Someone perfect in knowledge that sounds arrogant and egotistical unless unless Elihu really was a prophet see Elihu wasn't claiming to be perfect in knowledge himself only God is that but he was claiming to speak for God with God's truth, as any true prophet of God would, relaying to others the voice of God, the only one who is perfect in righteousness, or perfect in knowledge, excuse me. This was a God-given defense of God's righteousness. Back in verse 2, Elihu told Job, bear with me a little and I will show you, I will show you God's defense, not I will tell you or I will explain to you. No, I will show you. Now this makes the next two words in verse 5 hugely significant, which Elihu will repeat several times in this passage. He says, Behold, God is mighty. Behold means to look, see, pay attention, observe. So he's saying that God's might is evident, observable, visible. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Notice, though, that in his omnipotent might, God doesn't despise anyone. That's key. But it's like Elias continuing, continuing last week's theology lesson. Listen, Job, God is great. He is mighty. Here, let me show you how great God is. His greatness leads him to acting in certain ways in the world. And this is Elihu's first concluding point. He's, he's trying to bring everything together here, and he says this, that God's greatness compels both his judgment and his deliverance. God's greatness can be seen in the way he is both just and saving. God's greatness compels both his judgment and his deliverance. Over the next 11 verses, Elihu describes God's justice, going back and forth, how judgment inevitably comes to the wicked, and how vindication comes for the righteous. Now, of course, both Job and his friends have claimed that God is just. But both got it slightly wrong. The friends emphasize God's retribution at the expense of his mercy. And Job emphasized his own, his own goodness at the expense of God's fairness. Elihu represents a third option. That God is just 
and merciful, judging and saving. Look at verse 5. He says again, he is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. So, God is in the business of making things right for afflicted people. Verse 7. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Now God does sometimes right the wrongs we experience within our lifetime. But does this sound like a promise of exaltation in the here and now? No. Elihu seems to be referring to retribution or reward that happen at or after death. That the wicked are judged by not being kept alive indefinitely. And that the righteous are set on the throne forever, which is clearly eternity. God doesn't promise us amazing lives now. For proof, look at verse 8. It says, And if the righteous are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. How many of you have ever spent time bound in literal chains or cords? Yeah, no, not one of us, right? The extent that I have was playing with those little toy handcuffs that everyone has. Not very afflicting. Except for the time maybe that my friend and I chained our brothers to each other. I guess that could probably count as affliction. However, God's people over the years have spent lots of time chained or tied up. Many are even in chains today around the world. We must remember them. There's a Canadian pastor right now in prison in North Korea. Many others that are chained up that don't make the news. We must remember them. But notice, the chains Elihu speaks of aren't literal. He says they're the chains or cords of affliction. Well, we've all had affliction in our lives. We can all relate to that. If you haven't, just give it a few years. But these verses tell us three quick, clear truths about the afflictions that we do go through. Okay, first of all, that it is very possible for righteous people to be afflicted, contrary to the friend's ideas very possible for righteous people to be afflicted. Second, it is possible for righteous people to be arrogant and sinful, unfortunately. They can be arrogant and sinful. And third, God uses affliction to discipline or draw the righteous closer to him. He often uses this to discipline or draw us closer to him. God always has some purpose for our suffering, even if we don't know what it is. Elihu here says, that while the righteous are chained up, God speaks to them. Do you see that in verse 9? He says, while they're caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. So, even if you're not suffering because of sin, suffering can expose our sin. I know it can for me. I'm sure it does for you. If I'm going through a difficult time in life, I'm far more likely to get angry, distrusting, lustful, indulgent, or hurtful to other people. God may use hardships to show us ourselves and reveal where we need to grow, where we need to be told, like Job, to return from iniquity. Sometimes perhaps the only way for God to get our attention is to chain us up, slow us down, and literally make us captive audiences. Elihu continues his thought. In verse 10, he says, opens their ears to instructions and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, 
they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Now this would sound a lot like the bad prosperity theology of Job's friends if Elihu hadn't just contradicted it by saying the righteous can also suffer. His point here is that when we notice how God is correcting us and we change our ways, God then loves to reward true repentance. He does. Meanwhile, though, ignoring his corrections can prove to be deadly. He says, but if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and they die without knowledge. Verse 13, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. Suffering, if nothing else, always reveals our need for God. God can bind up all kinds of people in the affliction, both righteous and unrighteous. But the difference between the two is in their cries for help. Either we run to God when we fear our need for him, or we run away from him. The godless, it says, do not cry out to God. They try to tough it out on their own. Norman Havel says, suffering only intensifies their antagonism toward God. Therefore, they end up in a spiral of God's judgment. It says in verse 14, they die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. Of course, a young death isn't always certain. But God's judgment is. Cult prostitutes possibly refers to sexual slaves who are chained up in temples. The point is, sin always enslaves, and it leaves us in chains, which will lead to death and destruction. And yet, so many people refuse to cry out to the only one who can free them. The lie he was firmly established by now, God is mighty in justice. In fact, his greatness compels his justice. And God's greatness also compels his loving salvation. God is also mighty in deliverance. Look at verse 15. It says, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set on your table was full of fatness. Verse 16, there is a direct appeal to Job. Job, remember how God has blessed you in the past. God was so good to you. He pulled you away from distress. He gave you good health and full tables. God can bless us greatly. But he also delivers us greatly even without the blessing. You notice that? Verse 15, he said, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. So God sometimes delivers afflicted people by their affliction, via their affliction. The, another translation puts it this way. By means of their suffering, God rescues those who suffer. You ever considered that before? That God could be saving you by bringing the, you the exact thing that hurts you. I have a number of scars all over my body from major surgeries that I went through as a child. And each scar was made by a doctor, slicing me open, causing trauma, marring my skin. If I had been awake, I would have been in excruciating pain. And it proved to be a, a painful healing process for each one of those scars. But why would these doctors scar me for life? Because they were up to something better. They were causing some harm in order to accomplish great good. I had long-term problems on the inside of me that needed to be corrected. And the short-term pain of the scars was necessary for my full healing. <laughs> so I'm forever grateful that they hurt me in order to save me. Well, sometimes God may scar us 
in order to correct something inside of our hearts. Some entrenched rebellion, or pride, or selfishness, or greed, or envy, or the like. I'll tell you this. God's the best heart surgeon in the universe. But ultimately, for our full healing, God didn't scar us. He scarred Christ. He delivered us from the affliction of sin by affliction. But not ours, Christ's affliction. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you? Can you believe it? If you can, I urge you today, as Elihu did for Job, behold God. See your sin. Open your ears. And return from iniquity. Let God deliver you from judgment by the affliction that Jesus suffered on your behalf. See, he judges. But he saves. Why would he ever save us? Because it's in his nature. He is a great. God. He is great in judgment. He is great in deliverance. As Elijah said, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Elijah's like, Job, don't you realize how great God is? In contrast, you're not as great as you think you are. In verse 16 he says, God gave Job full tables and full bellies, but now Job was full of something else. In verse 17 he says this, he says, but you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. This is where Elihu gets very practical for Job, and for us as well. What he says to Job is this, that God's greatness compels our careful responses. God's greatness should compel some conscientious and careful responses from us. Job had been trying to get God to put him on trial throughout the book, to, to take his case, to hear his case. But somewhere along the line, Job had essentially put God on trial. And Job was acting as a judge. It says, but you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. It's like, God is perfectly just, Job, not you. Judging wasn't his place. And it was a dangerous place to be. It says, beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. In your anger, do not sin. Don't cross the line into scoffing at God, Job. When it says the greatness of the ransom there, it likely refers to costly repentance. So Elihu is telling Job to not let the cost of repenting scare him from repenting, prevent him from doing so. After all, there was no way Job could save himself. Verse 19, Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress, or all the force of your strength? Nope. Elihu then said Job shouldn't long for death as an easy way out. He says, Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. No, Job needed to be very careful about how he responded. He says, Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. 
For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Take care. And when we catch sight of God's greatness, we too need to take care. Why? Because God is too great not to. Verse 22 says, Behold, Another, behold, look, observe, behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? He is exalted, higher than anyone else, in power, with unstoppable strength and ability. Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Can you, Job? Sin and think so. Therefore, verse 24, remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. In this section of verses we just read, I see three clear ways that we need to respond. In true pastoral fashion, I made them all start with the same letter. First, we need to respond to God's greatness with humility. Humility. I see this in verse 17 in the warning against judgmentalism. Because it is so easy for us to think that we're better than other people around us. So easy to do. It is so easy for us to look down on others because of some issue that we see in their lives. It's so easy to think we deserve lots of good things. While others might not. We must fight these tendencies fiercely. Guard against them tenaciously. Because God is the only one who gives us anything. We have nothing and are nothing without Him. We can't earn anything good by ourselves. Not the least of all salvation. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress? Or all the force of your strength? Can't do it. Only God can. I also see the need for humility come through in verse 22 and 23. As Elihu compares us to God. Because it's so easy to lower our estimation of God just because we don't understand something about Him. It's so easy to presume that we know best. We love to subconsciously think we're God and act like God. And it becomes so easy to, to judge God and his ways as maybe not being perfect. But who has prescribed for God his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? No one. We must Humble ourselves and remain humble. He is great. We're anything but. Second, we must respond with holiness or holy living. I see this response in Elihu's commands to, for Job to turn away from wrongdoing. And when we realize how great God is, it, in, it should inspire us to live holy lives. And Elihu soberly warns Job here, verse 18, he says, Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. And in verse 21, Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Turn away! Flee sin! It, it's never worth it! Beware! Take care! Make precautions! And I think that if we were constantly aware of God's greatness in every moment, I can almost guarantee that we wouldn't sin. How could we? We'd be far too terrified to ever go against Him. That's what sin is. Going against the great God of the universe. We must be humble, we must be holy. third response I see for us here is the one who ends with, we must give God our homage. We must extol the exalted one. To sing 
praise him, worship him, fear him. And he says in verse 24, remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. Our natural reaction to seeing something great or amazing is to praise it. That is a beautiful sunset. What a goal! Great job, son. Wow! We do this all the time. Worship is hardwired into us. This is what we are created for. So when we behold that God is great, this should naturally pour out from us. We shouldn't be able to help but to extol His work. And I'll tell you, this should happen on far more than just Sunday morning. We've got to talk God up. Because if, if we truly believe that our God is great, people around us should know how we feel about it. Now I think that what comes next is pretty electrifying. Because Elihu really wants Job to see with his own eyes just how great God is. So he launches into a long description of how we can see God's handiwork in creation. He mentions several different aspects of creation, but he'll focus on one in particular. Storms. Now, Elihu could just be describing a storm in general. But I have another feeling, another theory. In studying this passage, I can't help but think that a real, powerful storm was actually blowing in. That as Elihu spoke, the skies clouded over, and rain fell, and wind howled. We can only imagine what this scene would have looked like, filled with dramatic tension, as Elihu probably had to yell louder and louder over the noise of wind and rain and thunder. Behold! Look at this! This is God's doing! And all Elihu can think is, he observes this storm brewing, is that God is so great. Because, God's greatness is observable in creation. We can catch glimpses of God's might and power and greatness in the world around us. God's greatness is observable in creation. Look how Elihu begins to make this powerful point in verse 26. He says, Behold, again, behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. But he is great beyond what we can know. He is ageless and eternal. And evidences of just how great he is are the weather systems he created. Look at verse 27. He says, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? You notice verse 27 is a one-verse description of the water cycle. Evaporation, condensation, precipitation. The point is God created and controls the water going up, and the water coming back down. But can you see this scene unfolding? As a wife who speaks, clouds appear on the horizon. They begin getting closer. Soon enough, those dark clouds roll in, blocking the sun. And then it begins to rain. Starts as a mist and quickly grows into a downpour, as he says, dropping abundantly. Eventually, clouds cover the whole sky, and thunder is heard in the distance. And Elihu points to the storm and says, you see the clouds and the rain? You hear the thunder? Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Even if we can now understand some of the science behind these things, try understanding how God made them, or causes them, or controls them. 
We can't fully understand his creation at all, and we can't ever duplicate his powers. And then, behold, lightning! That's what they see next in verse 30. It says, behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. Elihu then explains that God carries out his purposes through the weather. It says in verse 31, For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. So, God can use storms to judge people. He can also use storms to feed people by watering and fertilizing crops for food or quenching creatures' thirst that we then eat later. The same storm can bring judgment and blessing. Meanwhile, lightning just kept crashing around Elihu, Job, and company. Verse 32, it says, He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. The storm declares God's presence. Maybe even more truly than Elihu knew. We know what comes next. As herds of cattle bellowed and scattered for shelter, God was rising up. This is exciting, is it not? It's exciting for Elihu, too. Look at verse 1 of chapter 37. It says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. That's a vivid picture. As the storm kept growing in intensity, Elihu's heart beat faster and faster with fear and apprehension, or joy and excitement, or wonder, or all of the above. The tension keeps building as Elihu declares, Keep listening, Job. Keep listening. Verse 2, Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Now remember, Elihu earlier emphasized that God is a speaking God. He summarizes that truth here and says, God can speak through storms. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Imagine how dramatic that would have sounded if Elihu was trying to be heard over rolling thunder. God rumbles and roars and thunders. He speaks wondrously with his voice. After this, Elihu either mentions another feature of the weather that God controls, or this crazy storm he was describing included some even crazier weather. <laughs> In verse 5, he says, He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 6, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Now, that's a verse for Canadians. Snow doesn't fall unless God allows it, unless God tells it to fall. Neither does rain. Again, it says, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Can you just imagine Elihu stretching out with his hands, drenched by the rain? His mighty downpour. Verse 7 essentially says that when a storm blows in, everyone stops working. That's what it means when he says, he seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. In other words, when God shows his power, people stop dead in their tracks. And I don't know about you, but one of the only things that can rival a sunset in seizing my attention is a massive thunderstorm. I have to stop whatever I'm doing 
and just watch. Fascinating. The New Living Translation puts it, Everyone stops working at such a time so that they can recognize his power. Animals also stop what they're doing and go and hide in their homes. You see in verse 8, he says, Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. In verse 9, the wind seems to pick up. It says, From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering wind. So things were cooling down fast. And a whirlwind appeared as well. My guess? That a tornado touched down in the distance. And whether or not Elihu saw ice, the cold of this storm breaking the humidity, the cold inspired him to remember winter. It says by, in verse 10, by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. Did you know that even winter can powerfully display God's greatness? Who else can freeze whole rivers and seas? Not you or me. Do you think the NCC froze the canal this year? But back to the storm. Then. God loads, in verse 11, God loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. And can you see this storm just roiling overhead? Perhaps a tornado spinning closer. All these things happen on earth by God's guidance and for his purposes. Did you see that? They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. That's a great verse. God sometimes shows his power to correct or discipline people. Sometimes he does it to providentially take care of his earth. And sometimes he guides forces in nature in order to simply show us love, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Whether or not we know them, God always has his good purposes, and he is always in control. All this was meant to evoke awe and wonder in Job. He says in verse 14, Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Stop, Job. Listen. Look. Behold. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. See, Elihu wanted Job to stop in his tracks and to think, to consider. And what should he consider? Who he is compared to God. It says in verse 15, Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Notice, Elihu confirms that God is the one who is perfect in knowledge, not him. But do you know these things? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? It's like you can't even control your own body temperature when it's hot outside. Do you know these things? Elihu's mentioned the cold of winter, now the heat of summer, verse 18. Can you, like God, spread out the skies as hard as a cast metal mirror? God's greatness is displayed and observable in creation around us. And when we stop and take notice of it, it should compel changes in our lives. 
The same changes we spoke of earlier, in fact. We must be humble. We're not God. He has unchallengeable greatness. We must live holy lives, which includes halting our impious, irreverent babblings. And we must pay homage. Pondering and praising the wondrous works of God. Elihu's at a loss at how Job could dare challenge such a great and awesome God. As he says in verse 19, he says, Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot drop our case because of darkness. Job, what would you really say to God if he answered you? I mean, I'm in the dark here. Verse 20, shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? Can I do, I want to speak to God like you want to speak to God, Job? Ha, 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 ha. I don't have a death wish. Elihu then draws to a, draws to a close. Conclusion. Perhaps the storm seemed to be drawing to a close as well, because he seems to see the wind dying down and the clouds clearing out, perhaps in the distance, as the sun breaks through, shining low in the sky on the horizon. He says, and now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. God was in the storm. He was also in the passing of the storm. Says, out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Elihu can't help but burst spontaneously into worship here. God is so great, so powerful, that we can trust that he will never violate justice or righteousness. But also, we can know that we will never fully fathom God's greatness. Verse 23 says, we cannot fully find him. He has splendor and awesome majesty beyond our comprehension. And this is Elihu's final point. Yes, God's greatness is observable in creation. And yet, God's greatness is unsearchable in majesty. Elihu repeats his main theme one last time. God is far greater than man, way beyond us. God's greatness is unsearchable in majesty. Look again, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Job thought he could justify himself rather than God. And Elihu's like, <coughs> no. God's greatness is unsearchable. How dare we even put ourselves on the same playing field as his? Even though God reveals himself to us in many ways, we can't ever fully grasp God. Elihu concludes better than I ever could. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. But he also wanted to stress something. One final time, look at the final verse. It says, therefore, men fear him. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now, we know that Job had shaped his life around fearing the Lord. Job had said himself, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. He knew that this was the most important thing in his life. But some of Job's words had seemed to reveal that he had slipped a bit. So Elihu calls Job back to where he began, to the fear and worship of God. Get back to where you started. Fear God. Keep blessing him. Whether he gives or whether he takes, blessed be his name. Don't get conceited. Fear God.
Likewise, some of us here today may need to be called back to where we were before. Somewhere along the line, we lost some of our reverent fear or passion for God. May God return. May we return to Him today with all of our hearts, worshiping Him with every moment we have, because once we catch a glimpse of God's greatness, our lives can never be the same. Elihu has given us a powerful look out of the heart of a violent thunderstorm. But as it turns out, the storm wasn't over yet. If it had quieted down, it was just a lull. Because the very next verse goes, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. See you next week. Let's pray. God, would you give us a, such a glimpse of your greatness that our lives would never be the same. That we would fear you, and honor you, and worship you with all of our hearts. May your greatness inspire our humility. May it cause us to live holy lives, because it is only your holiness that it can inspire our own. And then may we give everything back to you in worship. Lord, you are great. You are good. We thank you today, in Jesus' name, amen.